0: Welcome to Sermons and Sounds of Plymouth, the podcast of Plymouth United Church of Christ. I'm Pastor David and on behalf of the members of this congregation, thank you very much for joining us. May God bless you through these words and may you know God's love through them. Now, the podcast.
1: The first lesson is from the book of Jeremiah Jeremiah 31. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans and the seed of animals. And just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring evil, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, The parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge but all shall die for their own sins. The teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes will be set on edge. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The Gospel is from the book of Luke. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth?
2: Our second lesson this morning comes from Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 31. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. I've delivered a fair number of sermons, and usually I am uncomfortable doing it. It's not that I'm afraid of public speaking. I do that a lot. That's part of my job. I do that many times a week. Nor am I afraid of making a fool of myself, because, well, I've done that before, and I'll do it again, and if it's going to happen, it's going to happen, and there's no point dwelling on that. No, I'm uncomfortable because usually I feel called to give a message that I don't live up to. To say, be more generous when I am not, or forgive others when I have trouble doing it, or make a sacrifice that I myself am unwilling to make. I feel like a hypocrite, and justifiably so. I don't feel worthy of the authority given me. Today is a little different. If my interpretations of the three lectionary passages are correct, and I don't mean to imply that there's only one interpretation and that I have it, but if my interpretations are correct in some way, then I'm a little less hypocritical than usual today. Because today's passages are about wrangling with God, nagging God, and claiming authority. And I can do those things. And I do do those things. And I hope you do those things, too. It's Laity Sunday, a day to remind us that we, the laity, are ministers. And that term just means servants. We serve God as well, not not just Pastor David, but all of us are ministers. We are meant to serve God. In the Genesis lesson, we learn that wrestling with God is a good thing. In Jesus' parable taken from Luke's Gospel, We are pretty much told to nag God, to pester God, and not be shy about it. And in the passage from Jeremiah, we are uh, told that a new covenant will be written not in stone, but in our hearts. So we can take authority from what is in our hearts. We don't have to go to what is written in stone, what is written on paper, what an authority figure gives us. No, we can look at our consciences, at our hearts, to decide and use to see what God wants. All three of these passages are giving us permission. And because we are reluctant, they are also encouraging us to use that permission. There are many metaphors in the Bible that that talk about our relationship to God. And I want to talk about two of those. One of them is the teacher-disciple metaphor. And the second is the parent-child metaphor. So let's look at the teacher-disciple metaphor first. Peter Rollins wrote a wonderful book called The Orthodox Heretic and Other Impossible Tales. We used it in adult education last spring. It's a connection, it's a collection, excuse me, a collection of parables. And they're parables where he is, where Rollins has taken some of Jesus' parables and put a twist on them. Uh, sometimes he has taken parables from other places. Some of them I think he just made up. But they all make you think. And there's one of them I'd like to, to summarize for you, and it's called Betrayal. In Betrayal, a master tells his disciple, you have been a thoughtful and dedicated follower of my teachings for many years, and you may well one day become a great teacher. However... I sense that you are in danger of betraying me in your thoughts and actions. The disciple is shocked, and he protests, I very carefully followed all of your teachings. I would never betray you. The master, however, replies, The fact that you have never betrayed my teachings, and the fact that you swear never to betray them, This is to betray them already. The master desires that his students take their own path, that they find their own way, that they go beyond his teachings, that they apply them in new ways, challenge his teachings, wrestle with his teachings, and if necessary, betray his teachings. That's what the master wants. Now, I'm a teacher. And I'm delighted when one of my students intelligently challenges me. Or when a student who is a former student of mine has gone off to graduate school and returns for a visit, tells me how he or she is doing, and I realize that they know more than I do. That's the goal of every teacher. My relationship with that student has changed. I was once an authority figure. Now I'm a colleague. And let's look for a moment at the parent-child relationship. As a parent, I want my child to grow up. Not too quickly. I want to enjoy my son's childhood. I want him to enjoy his childhood. But I don't want him to stay a child forever. I want him to grow up. I want him to surpass me in knowledge in wisdom, in health in strength in courage, in just about anything. I think every parent wants that. But the child must wrestle with the parent as well. The child must find his or her own way. Decide what parts of the parent's advice he or she will keep. Decide how they will go on and make their own life. A completely one-sided relationship isn't a relationship at all. So now let's look at that Genesis story in more detail. I'm gonna go back a little bit before that the, the, the part we read, uh, and if we go back a little farther in Genesis, we find that Jacob is fearful of his brother Esau. So he sends a peace offering to Esau. So he, he gets all his family and his servants, and he's got a big gift of cattle and other, other uh, goods that he's going to give to Esau. And he sends them all ahead of him because he's afraid of Esau. He waits behind. And so he's all alone, and he sent his entire entourage to, across the river, and a man, kind of out of nowhere, jumps on him in the middle of the night and wrestles with him, and so Jacob wrestles with this man. At first, the text kind of implies that he thinks it's his brother Esau, but soon he realizes that it is not, and Jacob starts winning. And then the man strikes Jacob on the hip, and his hip is knocked out of joint. But Jacob continues to wrestle and pins the man. And daybreak is coming, and the man says, release me. And Jacob says, no, not until you give me a blessing. And when he, received this, when he receives a blessing, it's a new name, Israel, Israel. And Israel means strives with God or wrestles with God. Jacob then realizes that he has been wrestling with a divine figure. He has been wrestling with God and won. Now, that seems pretty surreal to me. I'm not, uh, you know, I, I don't think of God as someone who, you know, in the middle of the night when I'm alone, jumps on me and starts wrestling with me. And if it does happen, I don't expect to win. Um, But I'll be honest, I have no idea how to take this passage literally. But figuratively, it's a very, very rich passage. Jacob wrestles with God, wins, is injured in the process. He goes away with a limp from his injured hip. And has a new name and a blessing. His descendants, the people of Israel, take that name with them. They are the people that wrestle with God, that strive with God, that fight with God. Fighting with God is not disobedience. It is an act of faithfulness. Just like the disciple in Rollin's parable must contradict his master to be faithful. It's not without cost, though, as Jacob emerges with a permanent limp. Similarly, in our passage from Luke, Jesus tells a parable about an old widow who gets no justice from a judge. She badgers him and nags him until he decides it's just not worth it. He grants her her petition just to shut her up. And Jesus tells us, if the unjust judge eventually is going to grant you justice, won't God? What's the lesson here? Don't be afraid to nag God. Now, I've yet to see little bracelets that have an NG on them. You know, I mean, we have the WWJD, and you know, maybe someday we'll have an NG. You know, go out and nag God. But to me, I've, that seems pretty clear that that's what this passage is telling us. Nag God. Now, I've argued with God a lot, and I've pestered God a lot. And I hope to continue doing so from time to time. And I'm going to tell you about a couple instances, and I may reach conclusions that you may find unorthodox or heretical or not agree with. Um, That's not my point here, Um, although I'm going to make that point anyway. (laughs) Uh, But my point is that we should be wrestling with God, and that God wants us to do that. So when I was a child, I could not understand how an all-loving God, an all-powerful God, could ever let anyone go to hell. I argued with God a long time over that one. I eventually told God that, even, that I thought that even I, a not very good person, could do better than that. And if you, God, can't be more moral or loving than I, a not very good human, well, God, then you don't deserve my worship. It's a pretty th- strong thing to say. And I think God smiled at that. Just like the master smiles when his disciple forges his own way. I think God smiled at that. Because afterward, when I hunted for answers through my own experiences, my own attempts at spiritual disciplines, my own scholarly reading, the more I found that that stereotypical judgment of God Sorry, excuse me, that stereotypical judgmental God wasn't real at all. And by the way, I picked up that stereotype not from my church. I picked it up from society at large. But that a loving, forgiving God was real. And that knowledge was a blessing that I received from God. I even developed my own hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is a pompous term for a rule you use when you interpret religious texts. And my hermeneutic is that if I'm going to take a text seriously, God has to be at least as good as I am. And if I read a text and I find that God doesn't appear to be as good as I am, then I'm not reading it right or there's something awry. And I'm going to treat that differently. Let me give you another example. This is one that I suspect most of us have had. Most of us have probably argued with God in this manner. In fact, Shar mentioned it this morning in adult education. I suspect most of us have asked, how could God let that happen when we see a great injustice? Let's picture an event all too common in our society. An innocent child is beaten and killed. There are some who will say, Oh, God let that little child suffer to fulfill some purpose we just don't understand. It's a mystery. And I say, nonsense. I'm not buying that God. Now, actually, I wouldn't use the word nonsense. I'd use a different word. And I feel I've given permission here to say a lot of things, but probably not the word I'd like to use in church. But, nonsense. And others would say, God gave us free will. So God's not to blame, and again I say, nonsense, or another word. What would you do if I told you that I saw a small child being beaten to death, and I did nothing about it? You'd probably think I was pretty disgusting and pretty vile. Would you let me get away with it and say, oh, I know what I'm doing, you just wouldn't understand, it's a mystery, it's beyond you. I don't think that would fly in our court system, and I don't think that would fly in your judgment of me. Or suppose I say, oh, I was just letting the perpetrators exercise their free will. I don't think that one would get me off the hook either. Not a good excuse. So if you're unhappy with my actions, and I would be, then I'm looking at it and saying, I should be unhappy with God. And since today's passage is about arguing with God, I'm going to do that, and I did that. And I suspect that a lot of you have done that too. What today's scripture passages are telling us is, ask God, tell God, nag God, yell at God, wrestle with God. Our passages tell us it's okay to do that. Treat God honestly. You want to have an honest relationship with God, and sometimes that means... Yelling at God. I think being faithful to God requires that. Now, I've, got, I've griped to God repeatedly about this one, and I haven't been hit by a lightning bolt yet. Now, if you're leaving church and you see next to my car some, you hear some thunder and see this big uh, charred mass there, you may want to rethink everything I'm telling you today. <laughs> But I've told God again that if you did, how can you do that, God? I wouldn't do that, or at least I hope I wouldn't do it. And if I did do it, maybe I would, I would be ashamed afterward. And once again I told God, if you do this, I'm not sure you're worthy of my worship. But I also continued to study and to listen and to look for answers. And I've come to the conclusion, and you may not agree with this, but I've come to the conclusion that God didn't help, not because God didn't want to help, but because God couldn't. In his book, Night, Elie Wiesel, who's a Holocaust survivor, tells a terrifying tale from the Auschwitz death camp. He was a prisoner there, And three Jewish prisoners, two men and one boy, were being hanged as an example for the other prisoners. And as this big crowd of prisoners was forced to watch this, a man behind Wiesel asked, Where is God? Where is he? And then they hanged the prisoners. And the men died quickly. They were heavy and their necks were snapped. But the boy was light and he didn't die right away. And they were forced, the prisoners were all forced to march up and see these dying men and look them in the eye, these dead men and the dying boy and look them in the face. And the same man behind Wiesel said, where is God now? That sentiment is expressed throughout the Psalms. You don't need my permission, read the Bible. It's in the Psalms. They're arguing with God all the time. It'll also be in our sermon hymn, O oh God, My God, where we argue with God. But Wiesel doesn't stop there. He writes, I heard a voice within me. Answer him. Where is he? Where he? Here he is. He is hanging there on these gallows. The more I study The more I pray, the more I think about it, the more I am convinced, and maybe you won't be, and that's okay, the more I am convinced that Wiesel was right. God was there suffering with the suffering, but that God was not the almighty tyrant that we sometimes think about. One of my favorite philosophers, Alfred North Whitehead, called God the great companion, the fellow sufferer who understands but in Whitehead's view, God is omnipresent, but not almighty. God doesn't stop the suffering because God can't. That's not how God works. God works through you and through me, calling us to do good deeds, to prevent this from happening in the first place. No, God doesn't stop, stop the suffering, although God desperately wants to. God can't. God can simply be there with us. And help us to make sure this never happens again. Rabbi Harold Kushner, whose son died of a rare, incurable disease, rethought his view of God having this great master plan and expressed similar views in his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Some of you may have read that. So, those are just two issues on which I have argued with God. And I suspect you have on that last one and on similar issues as well. And both times I came away with a different view of God. But I was much closer to that newer view of God, that I had a better relationship with God than I had before. And I think that God was glad that I raised the issue, maybe even if I came up with the wrong answers. I've argued with God over many more things, but I think you get the idea. And I don't expect you to take my ideas uncritically. If I'm telling you to argue with God and challenge what God is telling you or what you think God is telling you, you should certainly challenge what some lay preacher up here is telling you. (laughs) Lastly, I'd like to touch on the Jeremiah passage. God will write a new covenant not in stone but in our hearts. For Christians, that new covenant has been written already that's giving us a lot of permission. We have permission to act out of our consciences, out of love, out of that covenant written on our hearts, and not necessarily what's written on paper or in stone. Jesus did this regularly. He loved the law, the written law, and he generally followed it. But he always made compassion the exception. The law of love written on his heart was always higher. And so I leave you with my interpretation of these passages. Actively challenge, question, pester, nag God. Ask for justice and a blessing. Don't just wrestle with the text. I'm going to pick on David because he always tells us we should wrestle with the text. And that's a good thing. But we should not just stop at wrestling with the text. We should wrestle with God. We we want to have a good relationship with God. And that requires honesty. And that requires telling God when we don't get it and demanding answers. Actively challenge, question, pester and nag God. Ask for justice and a blessing. You may find you made some wrong assumptions. You may find that God was different than you thought. You may end up with very different answers than mine. But be open and listen after you pester God. And you might end up in a healthier, richer
0: relationship with God. Amen. And that is the good news for this day and for all days. Thank you again for listening to the Sermons and Sounds of Plymouth podcast. If you are in the Eau Claire area, we especially invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. And I invite you also to check out our website at pcucc.com for upcoming events and special worship services. From Plymouth United Church of Christ, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, this is Pastor David. Thank you for spending this time with us. May God bless you.